So today we're uh, near the end of this series, Living Legend. Um, I hope as you hear that, if you've been tracking along with us in the series, that you are not saying, oh good. I hope you're saying, oh drat. I wish it would go on forever. Because uh, in the series we're looking at, at Jesus as, uh, you know, in churches you talk about Jesus a lot. But we're looking at Jesus and looking specifically at what it is about him that makes him worth talking about 2,000 years later. Um, and so, uh, you know, today I want to welcome you. If you're a guest here with us, we're glad that you're here. Um, my name is Dion. I'm one of the teaching pastors. If you're joining us online, we're really glad to have you as we uh, talk about great humility. Now, uh, first, before we get into to the actual talk about humility, I want you to imagine for a few minutes living back in history. Imagine living, say, 300 years ago. Life would be pretty different, wouldn't it? I mean, obviously you wouldn't have electricity, so you wouldn't have computers or phones, and that means some of you would rather die than live back then. Um, I get that. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have cars. You, you, you know, life was totally different, but, but really all of those superficial things would really be the tip of the iceberg. That's just the beginning. I want you to imagine for a second living 300 years ago, and uh, one morning you wake up and you discover that someone in your household is sick. Uh, they wake up with fever and stomach pains and sweats, and uh, an hour or so later, someone else comes down with the same symptoms, and then a few hours later, someone else, and, and it feels like a plague is settling on your house, and for all you know, it could be. It could be a plague. It could be divine displeasure. Someone made God mad, and, and you're trying to figure that out. It could be an evil spirit. Point is, you don't know. You've got no idea what's going on. And so you quarantine the sick people off and, and you pray. You may call the shaman. You may bleed them a little to see if you can let the infection out. You may lay hands on them. You may try to cast out demons. You may make offerings to, to your God to try to assuage his wrath or anger. In other words, you grasp at every straw you can with the hope that something will work. Well, then nightfall comes, and suddenly, one of them makes a turn for the better. Uh, their, their fever breaks, and they start to feel better, and an hour later, the next, and then the next, and, and, and you say a prayer of thanks because a crisis has been averted, but, but here's the thing. You have no idea how it happened. You have no idea why it happened. Worse yet, you have no idea how you can prevent the same thing from happening again in the near future. So time goes on, you know, 100 years or so. And you arrive at the year 1860, and we meet a man by the name of Louis Pasteur. And he does some experimentation. He's one of these crazy scientists, and he does these experiments, and he discovers that disease is caused mostly by microorganisms, things called bacteria. Not necessarily by evil spirits and everything else that you might have thought. And he also discovers that these life-threatening bacteria, that, that they could actually be killed off pretty easily just by applying heat or disinfectant. And so all of a sudden doctors begin to wash their hands in between patients and, and they sterilize their instruments. And suddenly people realize that if they heat their food hot enough and if they boil their water, that people in their houses will stay healthy for longer. About 60 years later, other scientists and doctors come along and they actually develop medicines, antibiotics, penicillin, that can treat these infections once they get inside of you and, and they save 
thousands of lives. And then, and then about 100 years or 60 years after that, you end up with a country full of germaphobes who bathe themselves in hand sanitizer. <laughs> Too much of a good thing, right, sometimes? See, every once in a while in history, someone has come along and they have brought with them revolutionary insight. I'm not talking about just interesting discoveries. People make those from time to time, things that explain how things work, and you go, oh, that's cool, I'm glad I know that. But I'm talking about insights that are truly revolutionary, that change the way people think and live and act. And today we're going to look at one of these revolutionary insights. We are going to look at something that the world did not understand for thousands of years, that was kept hidden, that was kept secret for so long, and and people struggled to figure it out, and, and they couldn't figure it out until one day it was made plain. A secret that when once uh, known, it, it changed the world. You're all in suspense. So I'm just going to tell you what it is, so that way if you have to leave early, you don't miss the point, okay? Um, Here it is. Here's this revolutionary insight. Humility is a requirement for greatness. Humility is a requirement for greatness. It was a revolutionary insight when it came into the world. Absolutely revolutionary. And some of you right now are thinking, it it must be revolutionary because I I don't think I got that memo. I I I don't know about that. That humility is required for greatness. Because we might say that humility is a desirable quality for someone. Maybe even for a leader. You know, especially if you're talking about your boss, you would like them to evidence humility. But, but you know, even that concept servant leader that we hear so much about, in the ancient world, that would have been a foreign concept. In the ancient world, leadership and humility had nothing to do with each other. They were almost antithetical to each other. If you were a leader of a nation or or of anything, your your whole job was to show everyone how great you were. And so you would have statues commissioned of yourself, and and, uh, and, and you'd tell people to bow down and worship those statues, and and you would commission great works in your honor, and and you didn't serve people because you, you actually measured your greatness by the number of servants that you had. See, for a really long time in the history of the world, humility was anything but a virtue. It was synonymous with weakness, not greatness. And then in the second or third century AD, something started to happen. Things started to change. Humility started to be something that people found attractive and desirable. It's it's something that they wanted to see in their leaders. Okay, okay, so uh, maybe you could say humility is one path to greatness. But, but this idea that, that true greatness requires humility, surely there are other ways to greatness, right? I mean, just look around at the world around us today, the people that we consider great, the great politicians, the great athletes, the, the great artists, so many of them are anything but humble, Right? Uh, t- take a look at this, uh, this group up here. You recognize some of those people? You should recognize most of them. And many of those people are anything but humble. You, you know what? Here, here's the problem for us today, though. We've gotten our, our, our terms confused. We have started to confuse greatness with fame. Those people may be known or famous. That doesn't make them great. They, they may have their five minutes of fame, their, their time in the spotlight, but that's not great. To, to be able to be remembered, 
throughout history, as someone who is, who is truly great, it requires humility. Jim Collins is a, is a business writer. He's written great books. Uh, one book called uh, How the Mighty Fall, another book called Good to Great. And Jim Collins has made it his life's work to study leadership of great organizations. And, and so he's done these studies and he's realized that, that there are differences between leaders who are really good leading pretty good companies and leaders who are truly great leading the best organizations. And he studied what's different about these leaders that he calls, you know, level three or four leaders versus these level five leaders who are the greatest leaders of our time. And here's what he discovered. He discovered that the difference between a level four and a level five leader comes down to one virtue above all. That virtue is humility. He says this, he says, humility is the distinct feature, I'm sorry, humility is the distinctive feature of the best leaders of the most successful organizations. And you know, Jim Collins, he is is not a Christian. But after studying this and doing this research and making this discovery, he's gotten more interested in Christianity. You want to know why? Because he realizes, like anyone who studies history should, that this virtue originates with Jesus. Like Louis Pasteur figuring out this stuff about germs, Jesus is the one who brought this this truth into light so that we could all know it. I mean, you can verify it historically. You you can go back to the places where it all began, and today I'd like to show you one of those places. So uh, go to John chapter 13 on your smartphone. You can go to uversion.com, uversion.com, and you can type in STJSTL. Under the live section, you can grab a Bible ahead of you and go to John 13. You've got to go way, way back, four-fifths of the way back in your Bible. You'll pass Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. If you go to the book of Acts or any book with I-A-N-S at the end of it, you've gone too far. So back up and go to John 13, starting at verse 1. There's a table of contents at the front of the Bible if that helps you. See, there are a lot of places in the Bible where Jesus teaches humility, but, but I believe this is, this is, the, this is the seminal event that takes humility from, from being something that people didn't care anything about to being something that people admire and aspire to. That makes people truly great. Um, so John chapter 13, as you're turning there, uh, it's interesting, I'll say this too, that this event is not recorded in any other gospel. Uh, other gospel writers, they give accounts of this night and the same things that happened in this space. It's the night before Jesus gives up his life. And uh, they talk about him instituting the Lord's Supper. That's in all the other Gospels. But here, John focuses not on the Lord's Supper. He focuses on this event that we're about to see. And I kind of wonder, did the other disciples just miss it? Was this so revolutionary that they didn't even understand how great Uh, what Jesus was about to do uh, truly was, the impact that it would have. So let's look there. John 13, verse 1. It says, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this is getting, again, very close to the death of Jesus. He's just got a few hours left on this earth. Uh, Verse 2, it says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, so in the ancient world, this whole idea of foot washing, it's a normal practice. Because you'd walk around in sandals, and it was dusty and dirty, and so, you know, you'd come into the house. I, I do this when I get home. Uh, my wife thinks I'm a germaphobe. Maybe I am. But I come home, and the first thing I do is I, I go to the sink. I wash my hands, right? Just you know, getting it all off. Uh, because then the second thing I do is I eat. Anyone else have that pattern? I go home, and you eat right away. I go to the refrigerator. So I wash my hands, and I eat. So in the ancient world, uh, they didn't they wash their hands too, but, but they had this problem of, of really dirty feet. And so when you'd come into a house, you'd, you'd come in, and the host of the house would have servants there, and the servants would, would pour water on your feet, wash your feet, so that you could go into the house and, and feel, you know, not like a, uh, not like a dirt monger. Okay? So that, that's what you would do. But the problem here is that Jesus and his disciples are gathered in a rented room. Just, just some space that someone let them have, and so there's no real host to this party. If there's any host, it's Jesus, and Jesus doesn't have any servants. And so you get this picture of these really just kind of lowly guys who are sitting around trying to have a fancy meal, and none of them have been fancied up. None of them have, have had the benefit of getting their feet washed first. And so Jesus takes note of this opportunity, and he begins to wash their feet. Now, this is crazy because we're talking about Jesus here. Again, the host would have his servants wash people's feet. The host would never wash someone's feet. And here you have Jesus, the host of this meal, not just the host of this meal, this guy who, who they think might be the Son of God, who is now bowing down to wash their feet. What's going on here? Jesus is showing them that humility is a requirement for true greatness. And I suppose right now it'd be a good time to actually talk about what then this humility thing is. So you might want to take a note here. Uh, humility is, look at verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. We learned a couple things there. We learned that humility is a realistic assessment of yourself. Humility is a realistic assessment of yourself. And then we learn another thing, that humility is born out of security, not insecurity. So humility is a realistic assessment of yourself, and it's born out of security, not insecurity. It says Jesus knew that everything had been placed under his power. He knew who he was. He knew what he could do. And he was very secure in that. So, so you see, humility, we, we, we get this all wrong when we try to be humble or we try to look for humility or apply it. It is such a slippery thing because humility is not denying that you've got skills or gifts. So many of us think that if you're going to be humble, you can never say that you're good at anything, right? And some of us take it a step further. We, we pretend to be bad at things that we know that we're good at in the name of humility, don't we? Y'all aren't being honest if not. I mean, because this is something I do, right? I, I struggle with this. The way I was raised, my personality is something. It just, it just feels to me uh, disdainful to claim that I'm good at something. And, and that's silly, right? Because we're all good at some things. No one's good at everything, but we're all good at some things. And so what do we do? We know we're good at things. And, and, and so in the name of humility, though, because we, we don't want to be prideful, we pretend that we're not. And so people give us a compliment. And, and, and the church is the worst place for this. Because someone gives you a compliment or they encourage you and you go, oh, without the Lord, I could do nothing. Right? 
Some of you haven't spent enough time around church. Uh, if, if you haven't heard people say that, there you go, oh my goodness, you know, uh, to God be the glory. Uh, which is true, right? To God be the glory. You could do nothing without, without God, but I don't think the person giving you, giving you that compliment, I don't think they were arguing that point. I don't think they thought it was all you. I think they were just trying to encourage you. And yet, in the name of humility, what do we do? We, we, we pretend that we're not good at things that we know we're good at. See, that's not humility. Humility is having a realistic assessment of yourself. Knowing what you're good at, knowing what you're not good at, and being secure in that. Humility is not low self-esteem. Don't mistake the two. There are plenty of people who have low self-esteem and they're not humble. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about this. Uh, he, he wrote a lot about pride, which is kind of the partner vice that goes along with the virtue of humility. And he said, he said, you know, pride isn't just thinking that you're great. Pride is also thinking that you're terrible. Pride is really any time that you think of yourself too often. There's a guy by the name of John Dixon who picked up on this theme. He's a, he's a contemporary writer. He wrote a book called Humilitas. It's a book that's all about uh, humility and the rise of humility as a virtue. It's a really fascinating book. He says, people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. Hear that? People with humility don't think less of themselves. It's not low self-esteem. They just think of themselves less. They're less preoccupied with themselves. See, often we make this mistake. We assume that people who brag and boast and try to show off, we assume that they're prideful, that they're arrogant, that they think too highly of themselves. Chances are it's just the opposite. If they were truly secure in who they were, if they had a realistic assessment of self, I shouldn't say they, I should say we, right? If we had a realistic assessment of self, if we were secure in who we were, we wouldn't need other people to be impressed with us. We wouldn't need other people's approval. See, low self-esteem, that is not humility. Humility is not being a doormat. I'll talk about that in a second. And humility is not pretending to be humble, but slipping a little bit of a brag right in the middle. You guys know about humble bragging? If you don't know the term, you've heard people do it. I guarantee it. You know, someone who says, oh, I'm such a slob. I can barely keep my 7,000 square foot house clean. <laughs> or, uh, or, you know, someone who says, man, I hate it. And this happens to me all the time. I hate it when, when people mistake me for Bradley Cooper and ask for my autograph. I just can't stand all that attention, you know. And, and you hear people say stuff like that, or maybe you say stuff like that, and, and you're thinking, that's, that's not humility. You're not even good at pretending to be humble. That's... See, that's not humility. It's, it's not pretending to be humble and then really bragging and, 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 and using humility as a source of pride. See, humility first, you've got to write these down, is a realistic assessment of yourself. It takes knowing yourself, knowing who you are, discovering your gifts, discovering your weaknesses, and then being secure in those things. And then further, uh, humility is active, not passive. It's active, not passive. Look at verse 4. It says, uh, so, you know, verse 3 says, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and he was returning to God. He was secure, verse 4, so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. See, see, humility isn't something that someone else puts upon you. Humility is active. It's something that you actively seek to do. It is a choice. It's not something you're forced to do. If you do things because someone's forcing you to do it, you might be obedient, you might be wise, you're, you're not necessarily humble. 
See, humility is always active. And so if I could put these all together, um, I, I would say this. Humility is holding power loosely for the sake of others. Humility is holding power loosely for the sake of others. See, it takes first knowing who you are, knowing what you're good at, and being secure in that. And then it's actively using those things for the sake of others. Humility is resisting the urge to to use all of your power for you. Humility is, is resisting the urge of using your power to get more power, your wealth to get more wealth, or your influence to get more influence, all for you. Humility is holding all of that stuff loosely and saying, I know I'm really good at things, and I've got influence, and I've got power, and I'm secure in who I am, but I am going to actively find ways that I can not only hold my power loosely, but that I, I can actually leverage it to serve others. If you want to know what humility is, humility is knowing that you are the son of God and having all power and authority put under you, being the king of everything, having everything at your disposal, knowing that you could could call down legions of angels to serve you at any moment, and yet taking off your outer garment and tying a towel around your waist and bowing down and washing the stinking, dirty feet of your disciples. See, that's... That's humility. It's born out of a realistic self-assessment. It's being secure in yourself, and it's actively holding your power loosely for the good of others. And I want you to see how unsettling this is in the next few verses. Look at verse 6. I mean, when you're in the presence of someone who is truly humble, it is uncomfortable. Look at this. It says, uh, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, he said to him, "Uh, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter answered, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. This guy's on a roll. Verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are already clean. Though not every one of you. Jesus is saying, you know what? I've already done things in your life. I've already cleansed you by the power of my word and, and through faith. And, and so, you know, that, that's not what this is about. And, and then he goes on. He says, not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not everyone was clean. See, see Peter watches Jesus doing this. Simon Peter. And he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it at all. This behavior just doesn't compute for him. This is not what leaders do. This is totally unprecedented. And Simon had spent more time with Jesus than anybody. You know, he had gone away with with Jesus to quiet moments of prayer, and he had seen Jesus be transfigured and, and, you know, fly up into the air and start glowing and, and heard God's voice speaking over Jesus. I mean, Peter saw crazy things. And yet when he sees Jesus like this, it just, it just fries all of his circuitry. He doesn't understand it. Because up to that point in Peter's life, and all throughout the world, if, if you had power, you used it to make people do what you wanted them to do. If you had power or influence or authority, you used it to make people do what was in your best interest, not theirs. But you see, Jesus is showing them that that's not the way of true humility, and so that's not going to be his way. Besides, Jesus only has a few hours left on this earth, and and it's really important that he gets this lesson across because within a few hours, he is going to be hanging on a cross. 
And it's really going to blow the minds of his disciples if they don't understand this connection between greatness and humility. That true greatness requires humility. Because they're going to watch as Jesus, out of a strong sense of self, actively using his power for the sake of the world. And everyone who sees that and doesn't understand this insight, this secret, this this revolutionary idea, they're going to assume that Jesus hanging on the cross means that he was weak. They're going to assume that it means that Jesus was not who he claimed to be, that he was not the leader that he promised to be. They're going to go away from that place disappointed. And Jesus has to show his disciples before it's too late that humility and greatness always come together. That what they're about to see on the cross is not weakness. That it is in fact true greatness because it's Jesus taking a realistic assessment of himself securely and actively using his power for the sake of the world. See, that's true greatness. Everything that Jesus endured, no one made him do it. Nothing that is about to happen to Jesus throughout his suffering, throughout his death, not a single thing happens without his consent. This is not weakness. This is not the Roman government breaking another religious rabbi. This is true power, but power that is held loosely, that is yielded and leveraged for the good of others. I just want you to meditate on that for a second. That everything that Jesus endured on the cross leading up to it. No one made him do any of it. He chose it for himself. He sought it actively for you. He held his power loosely. He he laid it down for you. For your sake. Not, Not his own, but for you. I don't care who you are today and what your story has been to this point or or what your familiarity is with with Jesus. This is truly great. I mean, this this is greatness set before us. Let's see how it resolves. Verse 12 says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. Nope. Uh, None of them did. It's safe to say they did not have a clue. And and then he explains, he says, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for for that is what I am. See, see, right now he's addressing this confusion because right now they're going, this doesn't make sense. This guy must not be the, the Lord and teacher we thought because he's doing this stuff that leaders don't do. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't make this mistake. Don't assume just because you see me doing these things that I am not your teacher, your rabbi, that I am not your Lord. I am. All those times that you called me rabbi, you were right. That, that, that's who I am. D- don't make that mistake. But let me explain, Jesus says, verse 14, now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
You like, you like what Jesus does here? He says, don't be confused. What you just saw is right on. In order to see true greatness, humility must be there. It's a requirement for true greatness. But, but then he turns it back on them and he says, this whole humility thing, I want you to do it. I, I want you to know who you are. Discover who you are. Be secure in yourself. And then actively hold your power, your gifts, your abilities, your resources loosely for the sake of others. See, this is a command that Jesus gives those guys in the room. And, and you know what? He, he's, as he's speaking these words, he's looking through those men there, through the walls of that room, through 2,000 years of time, and he's looking straight into this place today. And he's saying, I want you to know who you are and be secure in yourself so that you can then actively hold your power loosely for the sake of others. See, if you follow Jesus Christ, this is a command. It's not optional. Jesus is asking you to join the ranks of these men and women who, starting 50 days after his death and resurrection, began doing this, began using the power that they had, holding it loosely for the sake of, the, of other people. And, and you realize that, that these people changed the world, and you start to think about who they were. They were this minority group, these broke people, these people who had no power or influence to speak of, and yet they used what they had, and they held it loosely and leveraged it to serve others, and it changed the world. Now I want you to think for a second, by comparison, about us sitting here in this room. The power, the influence, the wealth, the resources that we have at our disposal. If these just, you know, broke, know-nothing guys back in the first century could, could use what they had to serve others and it changed the world, can you imagine what could happen if we took this command from Jesus seriously? Now, I realize there's some of you here today who are, who are not Christians. You don't follow Christ. And if you do, I want you to know that you are off the hook for all of this stuff, really. It does not apply to you. This, this is a command that is given specifically to Christ followers. So, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. This doesn't apply to you. You can just go out and, you know, have people shine your shoes or whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter. But here's what I want you to know, whether you follow Christ or not. The thing that makes this insight truly revolutionary it's not that Jesus commands it and says it's a good thing to do. The thing that makes this insight truly revolutionary is what Jesus says last. He says, you will be blessed if you do these things. See, humility is not just something that, that we should do because Jesus does it or because he tells us to do it. But Jesus says, if you just do this, this is where the insight comes in. If you just do this thing, if you just wash your hands and boil your water and, and heat your food, you won't get sick. If you, if you just do this, you will be blessed, Jesus says. You know, you go further in life with humility. Remember Jim Collins? He says the best leaders, the best leaders of the best organizations have learned this secret. Humility leads to success. It's totally upside down, but it's true. Same is true with the best performers, the best, the best athletes, whatever. The, the people who are great beyond just a few years, the people who, who, who last who are remembered as great, they've learned that humility must be a part. It is an, an essential ingredient for greatness. If you learn humility, you'll be happier with who you are. Because you may get people to do what you want when you've got a lot of power and you leverage it for your good, but you never feel good about yourself. But when you begin to hold your power loosely for the benefit of others, you will live a happier life. 
And you know, most of all, when you, when you start to do this, when you try to learn humility, you will be blessed by joining the ranks of people all throughout time and space who have been truly great. Again, not famous, but great. Many of whom are just totally unknown to any of us. We've, we've never heard of them, but, but to the people who knew them, the people who surrounded them, they know that they were truly great. I mean, I mean let, let's just be honest for a second. When it's all said and done, and they put you in a box, or in an urn, or however your, your remains are laid to rest, and, 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 and the people gather around you there on that day, can you think of anything greater? I don't care if there are only three people there that day. Can you think of anything greater than those three people being in agreement that, that here lies someone who, who knew who they were and actively used what they had to serve others for the good of others? When it's all said and done, could anything better be said of your life than that? Here's a warning for you. Even though this insight has been made plain by Jesus, the world still struggles with this one big time. We, we all struggle with this one. Just like some of you still struggle with washing your hands, even though Louis Pasteur told you to, and uh, I'm not going to go there today. Hygiene lessons will be on another day. Uh, but you know, uh, the world will struggle with this, but, but if I could just take a line from Jesus, I want to remind you of something. Jesus said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, knowing them is not enough. But, but now that you've had your eyes open to this insight that true greatness requires humility, you will be blessed if you actually do these things. So will you? If you're someone who kind of wants to, then the only way it begins is not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord through prayer. So stand up as we pray.